This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. According to the latest available data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, this data is from 2020, the rate at which kids in the U.S. are being diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder has risen to 1 in 36 children. That's up from 1 in 44 in 2018 and 1 in 101 in 2015. The increasing rate has spurred a growing demand for education, therapy, and other services for neurodivergent kids and their families and for their entire support networks. Our guests today both have backgrounds in social work, and it was through that work that they decided to step into what they saw as some gaps in coverage when it came to ways to support kids and young adults on the spectrum, and that led to the founding of the nonprofit Family Initiative in 2015. Now they provide a broad spectrum of support services for neurodivergent kids and their families through their Cape Coral headquarters, as well as other locations around South and Southwest Florida. I spoke on Monday with Family Initiative's co-founders about the new CDC data, the programs they offer, and the new programs they've added, and how they and the families they support got through Hurricane Ian. Let's hear that conversation now. Anjali Vandry is co-founder and vice president of Family Initiative. Anjali, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. And David Brown is Family Initiative's co-founder and president. David, welcome back to you as well. It is great to be here. So we had you both on the show in April of last year. You were on with John Davis. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to start off with this idea of changing the term from awareness to acceptance. Which of you would like to just highlight that for our listeners? Well, I think the biggest thing, Anjali, right, as we, as we talk about this is, um, you know, our organization is called Family Initiative, right? And we, we obviously did that really intentionally. Um, and I think the driving force for Anjali and I is to stay really connected to moms and dads and uh, all the individuals in the community, right, that are on the spectrum. And over the last several years, it's been really overwhelming, I think, for Anjali and I, the sentiment that we've gotten from everybody across the board of they're really tired of a conversation about awareness, and they felt very strongly that if we were going to make a push publicly to really champion the idea of acceptance, that the autism community is part of our community. And, uh, and at this point, they feel like that there should be plenty of awareness of, about individuals on the spectrum. And it's time that we have a conversation about in every facet and every corner of our community, what are we all doing intentionally mm-hmm. to make it for everybody? Um, and I really feel like that was – over and over again, the resounding message, right, Andre? I felt yeah. like that we had gotten from the family. So that's why we made such a strong push to really make that the mark of everything we do externally when we communicate and engage with anybody in the community is we want every business, every person, anybody, you know, from the fire department to schools, everybody, think about what do we need to do? We're designing and building something or creating something that really meets the needs of folks on the autism spectrum. You know, um, we did a thing, I think it was two years ago now, it was a nationwide thing spearheaded by PBS called Move to Include. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah, yes, sir. Um, and we did, over the course of the year, we did like seven or eight shows with organizations like yourself. But in that process, we made it a point to talk to the people who were affected, not just the people who work with the people who were affected. Um, so, we, you know, I talked several times to, you know, you know, teenagers and, and people in their early 20s who were on the spectrum. And it was really... Um, I loved doing it. I really loved having those conversations. And that, no offense to you guys, you know, <laughs> yeah, having no you offense here. Taken. But, um, but, you know, let's do another show in the future yeah. where we come to you or something and talk to the people yeah. you work with instead of yeah. just talking to you. And I got to say, Mike, one of the things that we did was we did a teen and young adult panel. Yeah. Right. About six, seven months ago. And it's actually on our Facebook page. We stream it live. Right. So it's, it's still there. And it was really cool because having, you know, five or six folks, you know, young men and ladies on the spectrum 
you know, they all had different responses to questions. And it's funny. I think people have this perception of it's some monolithic block that everyone's going to agree. And it was really cool to see their each of their perceptions and their attitudes and thoughts about different things were different. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was really cool for folks to see that and to hear from them directly. Um, but about what we're doing and not doing as a society. I saw a quote that said, um, um, there are as many kinds of autism as there are people with autism. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And it, I think last year we talked a lot also in addition to acceptance about neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. And I think as we have the conversation about acceptance as opposed to awareness, people recognize, part of acceptance is recognizing that neurodiversity that exists in a far greater reach than we realize. I think... I would say almost everyone we talk to is like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I feel that way, too. So it's interesting. I think the more we have these conversations and educate folks across our community, the more of a connection there really is. And I think makes it easier for folks to have some of that, um, those feelings of acceptance and understand how to meet the needs of the families we serve. Um, when we had you on the show last April, you talked about how, you know, Family Initiative came to be. Uh, can one of you guys give us sort of the short version? You guys both worked in the child welfare sector, um, and that sort of trickled into this or bl- blossomed into this. Yeah. Can you summarize that? <laughs> Summary is not my strength, but I will do my best. So like you said, yes, Mike, we both worked in the child welfare system um, in Southwest Florida. And long, long story short is we started to see more kids coming into foster care who either had an autism diagnosis and weren't receiving the supports or services that their families felt like they needed or pretty clearly had autism but had not been diagnosed. And back then, the incidence of autism was one in 101, I think. Um, So it was not nearly at the rate we see these days. But still, what started to happen is we were seeing more and more kids coming in and more families reaching out to David um, asking for help and established really great foster families saying, something is different here. And I've done this a really long time. Um, And at that time, we looked into the community and and about a decade ago, there really wasn't much in Southwest Florida to support the total needs of a family. So there are individual clinicians, but like Dave said, family initiative is about the entire family. So helping support moms and dads and aunts and uncles and neighbors and friends and just the community. And at that time for us, for folks working, you know, teachers and caseworkers and social workers. Um, And that really prompted us around the same time, David and I actually both graduated from FGCU with our master's in social work. So um, I think that lit a fire in us to, to make change. You know, we had spent a lot of time learning and growing and I think it was our time to to put that to work in our community to help families. Where, if anywhere, does autism fit into a master's in social work? That's such a great <laughs> question. And, uh, you know, it's funny. At the time when we were graduating, um, I think it was really interesting because a lot of folks were kind of saying the same, you know, social work, autism. I think at that time, folks weren't really seeing the intersection there. And um, and I think for us, like our families, like any families in the community, you know, face a myriad of different challenges, right? So it's it's one of their children, multiple of their children being diagnosed on the autism spectrum is one part of their life. Mm-hmm. And so what we see a lot of times is our families face the same struggles lots of other families face with housing, um, substance abuse, domestic violence, right? So we're, I think it makes us uniquely suited to come alongside families and help them navigate the region as far as resources and connectivity and integration of services. Because um, I think, you know, they struggle with a lot of things a lot of other folks struggle mm-hmm. with too. And so just having that unique lens of of understanding their family 
And how does our team really come alongside them to support them? Mm -hmm. I think having a social work background is invaluable for that. Hmm. You mentioned in 2015, it was one in 101. Mm -hmm. When you were on the show a year and a bit ago, it was one in 44. Now there's new numbers from the CDC that are showing one in 36. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the the medical community or the scientific community has a, a great handle on the why behind that. But from your perspectives, you know, what do you think might be a accounting for this increase? Because if it stays on this trend, I mean, it's already at a place where that's kind of shocking. Yeah. You know, what if 10 years from now, it's one in 20? Yeah, yeah I think it might be less than 10 years for that, yeah. right? So the trajectory, and I know for the families and the folks that we're talking to, um, not just in our region, but, you know, across the state, and across the nation, um, you know, I think there's a multitude of factors that lead into the increase in prevalency. Um, certainly, I think folks, like you were saying earlier, I think the the amount of understanding that's out there and the, you know, the general awareness about autism, I think has risen significantly. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think in culture and society, whether it's movies or television shows or or conversations with our neighbors, right. That I think folks see this as such an emerging issue. Um, So I think a lot more pediatricians are asking questions. A lot more parents Mm -hmm. now see developmental delays early on and are, you know, I think feel empowered to say something, Mm -hmm. you know, which I think is fantastic that, you know, we have 18 month old kids in our center and it's, you know, moms and dads are coming right in saying, hey, look, you know, I read about this online or I talked to my neighbor. I want someone to, you know, sit down with my family and have a conversation Mm -hmm. about what should we be doing right now. So I think that's been a real catalyst for why the increase in the prevalency um, and the only other thing I'll say is when the CDC made this latest um, release of the data, you know, the, the impact too, Mike, around black and brown families. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a huge part of this most recent release of, you know, this is, is, is emerging and is a significant, significant issue in all corners of our society. And what are we doing to make sure that everyone has access to early intervention, to ongoing services, to the kind of community-based programs that we offer? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I think the data and the trends in that, we will see another increase, I think, pretty soon. Um, the CDC coming out another year or two with, with again, an increase of the prevalency. So um, it's a, it certainly is an issue that we got to deal with in our society and our community. Anything you'd like to add, Anjali? I think the only other thing I would add is, and we've had a lot of dialogue about this, is the way mm-hmm. we look at autism. So I think understanding earlier and later, because we get plenty of folks every day, um, teens, young adults, middle-aged adults who have been recently diagnosed, So I think previously folks felt like if you weren't diagnosed at a certain age, then there was no hope for diagnosis or we didn't even think about it. There were just people who might have been a little bit different in where we worked or where we lived. But now folks older and older, more females, I think we see a big trend in that at our own organization getting diagnosed and reaching out. So I think even the way or the the criteria and the assessments being used um, are are honing in on some of those things a little bit more where we have more different assessments where previously um, there was really not as many and they're a little bit more focused towards males. I think over time, we've seen a big expansion of that. Um, Paired with exactly what Dave was saying, the more folks and more pediatricians and doctors who are thinking um, and the more mainstream media is kind of putting it out there, it makes people think a little bit more about it. So there might be sort of a silver lining way of looking at the numbers as maybe it's not necessarily more people with autism, but just more people who are getting treatment for autism. I absolutely think that's a part of it, no doubt about it. And, um, 
Yeah, it's, I think Andre and I talk about this a lot. We talk about this a lot with a lot of people. And, um, you know, whether there's some environmental component. I mean, there's lots of things we can talk about, right, about um, even some of the – I know Angie know better than me about this. But even some of the pockets of the sites where they drive the data, mm-hmm. um, there's higher prevalence in certain places. And it's like, why would that be the case? Hmm. So uh, it's just – it's interesting. And, uh, and I lean on the science um, as they advance the conversation about what's behind all this. Agree. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a strange question, but I think it'll make sense. Um, Hurricane Ian, um, A, how did it affect your facilities and and the work that you can do physically? But also, I was just trying to think through, you know, it's such a difficult time for all of us. You know, for somebody who has trouble interacting with the world and expressing their emotions and understanding what's happening, it must have really been something. Can you just talk about, you know, the, the Ian experience from Family Initiative's perspective? Yeah, it was quite an experience. So, um uh, we handle this in a multitude of ways. So we were super fortunate. Our location was relatively unscathed, comparatively speaking. So we actually, two days after the storm passed, um, opened up our Cape Coral and Fort Myers sites to accept families. We have a lot of parents who are first responders who needed to go to work. Our community needed help at that time. So a lot of our families worked in places that they needed to be at. And I think being able to assess what's happening in their own home. Um, so for us, we open doors pretty quickly in lots of different ways. Um, I'll talk about one of the ways and then I'll let Dave kind of talk more about some of the other ways because he does a great job kind of explaining that part of it. But we had kids, I think 60 <coughs> families between our two sites, no air conditioning, no electricity. <laughs> um, we we uh, all got very close those few weeks together um, and our team was just phenomenal about stepping up and being there for our kids. And I think, like you said, not only in the social aspects of it, but our kids are are drawn to structure and routine. So clearly that was all out the window um, during that time. So to create some sense of normalcy and familiarity, I think was good for all of us. Um, as, as challenging as it may have been, um, we were very, very blessed to have the generosity from folks across our community to help us um, provide and have things for our kids to be there. Um, But again, I think between our staff and our families to really pull together to create that opportunity where our kids, I mean, our families still talk about how meaningful that was because a lot of these families struggled a lot, lost homes, um, completely lost their homes, were displaced, had other families living with them. Even the conditions of their home when they did return, some of our families today are still dealing with um, things that have not much improved since that time. So um, that's just one aspect of it. So, Yeah, it, you know, Mike, I'm sure you've had so many people come to your <laughs> studio, right, and just talk about, uh, you know, the absolute devastation and, uh, you know, so many heartbreaking stories and in, uh, in our families like every other family in our region, right, just, um, you know, lost so much. And, uh, and, you know, obviously I think like a lot of folks are looking – you know, for support, trying to find somewhere to turn. And we were incredibly fortunate um, that our building in Cape Coral is a brand new building. And, uh, you know, like a lot of folks, I think we left, we didn't think we were going to come back to a building. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, we came back and it was totally intact. I think it lost like one piece <laughs> of soffit out of the corner of the building. And uh, and so obviously I think for Anjali and for every our board of directors and our organization was like, you know, what a blessing, but what an opportunity, right? That our building's here. Um, and, uh, like Andre said, next day, you know, we had, uh, kids and families in our building and, uh, you know, I think none of us, um, smelled particularly well, 
<laughs> we, and we, we I wasn't going to say that. We part. certainly looked a little worse for wear. Um, we all know. Yeah, we, was, we were all uh, in it. It was it was rough and tumble. But we, you know, for that three four weeks, you know, we had the, the building open every day. So there's a couple particular things I got to say about this. One is, you know, God bless Dane Eagle because Dane Eagle reached out to us two days after mm-hmm. the storm had passed and said to us, "What can I do to help you guys out?" What can we do? What can we provide on the ground right now to help families? And um, anybody who knows our kids knows um, uh, he got a, a Starlink system set up there. I think two days, mm-hmm. um, the, the state set one up there, which was incredible. Um, and so we had a parking lot in, a, in a, um, a field of cars with moms and dads sitting in air-conditioned cars. On their, their tablets. On their tablets. Yeah. And uh, the the – the kind of support that we got through having that Wi-Fi network available, um, it saved lives. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just that they see all the moms and dads being able to sit and quiet and having kids in the back of the car and they could do their thing. And it was like Anjali said, a little slice of their normal life, right? To get back into the things and the games and the stuff that they enjoy um, had an enormous amount of impact. And, um, and we were lucky. So uh, we got in, in partnership with the Department of Children and Families. And, uh, and because there wasn't a lot left in Cape Coral that was, um, that was functional, uh, they talked to us about, we set up a um, family resource center at our building and, uh, it was amazing. So, you know, they had some of the, the FEMA folks there, um, they had the DSNAP staff folks that were there to get access to services for families. Um, they actually had the Sunshine, um, health network folks that were there and, uh, they'll provide mental health services for families, families, mm-hmm. people just want to talk. And obviously, DCF set up for Harry Chapman Food Bank every single day. It was dropping you know, MREs and water and food and all kinds of things. So it was great because we could really tailor that to a lot of special needs families across our community. Um, and we got to the point where, you know, a lot of our families couldn't come out, Mike, right? So you, I mean, we all remember those long lines in lots of places. You know, it's just not feasible for if you've got a couple children, you know, and one or multiple of them are on the spectrum. You can't sit in a car for two hours in line. So we ended up delivering food to families. So we're texting with them um, on whatever phone had service <laughs> and figuring out what they needed. And we, our team was driving it out to all these different families across the community to make sure that they had what they needed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just think we just try to think of and identify like everyone else, any aspect of our families' lives that we can improve, whether it was you know, dropping MREs or food or water off or whatever. Um, and, and, and Anjali talks a lot about this, which I think is, is uh, you know, I think credit to our families is our kids like very particular things. So they won't just take an MRE. Like we ain't doing it, right? So, you know, to communicate moms and dads of like, what do they need? And I got to say, Harry Chipman Food Bank was phenomenal, right? Of mm-hmm. They went out and they've identified the particular kind of cocoa puffs that were, you know, chocolate <laughs> that, you know. So whatever it was, um, they made that happen. And, uh, and we ran the course like everyone else here did for weeks and weeks on end. Did that, did food distribution every day. And, uh, and, and I got to say too, um, we're really lucky. So, um, Senator Elizabeth Benacquisto came out and helped us out a bunch. Um, and even the speaker of the house, Paul Renner, um, drove over from the East coast. He actually <laughs> reached out to us and said, what do you guys need? And, uh, we said the biggest thing that we saw by far was diapers, formula, all those kinds of things, um, for infants and babies by far. Every time we had that, uh, we went quick. And so God bless him. He drove over from the East coast and uh, brought a big shipment of that to our center. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, it was awesome. And uh, and Representative Persons Mulek and all those guys were out there a lot and Representative G. Lombardo. It was really cool to see the leadership kind of coalesce around that spot because it was one of the few spots, I think, left in the Cape where we, you know, we were getting stuff out to families and, mm-hmm. uh, and trying to help people. Well, I'm glad I asked. You know, I, I wasn't sure if bringing up Ian was going to make sense or not, but it certainly has. And it highlights just all the ways that we've, what we went through together and, you know, just like 
there's as many Ian stories as there are people yeah. too. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, we only have about five minutes left, so Gosh. I want to I want to highlight um, uh, you know the programs uh, that you have as well as the new programs. Kind of mm-hmm. just give us a, a breakdown of the programs. You know, it's all the way from you know t- infants to grown-ups, basically, mm-hmm. or at least people in their you know. 20s. Yeah, yeah. And the one thing I just want to say about this, which was huge, is we um, had a great conversation with the United Way um, about the need for and to work in partnership with them to really develop a full continuum of care. That for us, I think like any family, you know, as we got to know our moms and dads, and I think our moms and dads got to know us, when you're comfortable with someone, you know, it's hard then to leave that ecosystem, right? It's like, you know, so we, Anjali and I felt like we didn't want to have like an arbitrary age. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of programs that are like that. It's like, well, we'll work with you guys till your son or daughter's 12. When they're 12, you know, that's, and that's I just, crazy. right. And yeah. I think it's hard because for us, it's like, you know, we fall in love with the families mm-hmm. and, and these kids who become young adults and who are amazing people. So to just pick a number and sort of say, we're done here, um, just didn't feel right. And, um, and so we worked the United Way in the ARPA funding that we received um, and built out a full continuum of care. And uh, to go from that, you know, 18 months to to 25-year-old young adults. Right, Ms. Ange? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes. You know, when we started, however many years, we started eight, ten years ago, um, we had this idea of a social skills group and we had an idea of the age range we'd serve. And I think what happened over that time is – we just kept getting inquiries from families across not even Lee County. I mean, you name it, across the state, honestly, um, who had children who were maybe just outside the age range of what we served in some capacity. Um, so we recognized the need. And, I mean, doing this is longer. Kids get older, right? So, And then they have baby siblings, too. So um, exactly from that one program we started in 2015 – um, we now we start with early screening. So anyone in our community twice a month, we do free screenings out of our location on a Saturday or as needed. We're able to kind of arrange that for families. Um, so like we talked about earlier with that early intervention and diagnosis, really getting families talking about that conversation early on. Um, this year we started a baby group, which is awesome, a baby and me group. So parents are able to come in with their kids and have our team of clinicians there to help engage, teach them how to engage, work on things that will help their children grow and develop. Um, And that's open also. We do that twice a month. Um, Then we have our social skill group, which kind of picks up from there and goes till their – I don't know, mid-20s right now is about where they're at. Um, But then we also have those specific groups for our teens and young adults also because – you know, that group started with just a small group of kids and maxed out space, basically. <laughs> and so um, those kids started getting older, too. So we kind of split them into a teenage group and then a young adult group that goes up to 30-ish right now. So um, and again, like Dave was saying, you know, as they get older, we can't be like, oh, well, you hit adulthood. Have a nice life. <laughs> I think for us, we love the families. We love these kids. They are part of our families. So I think to keep those services, um, we do sibling groups. So um, for brothers and sisters who have a sibling diagnosed, for them to have a space to come together and kind of talk through some of the experiences that they might have that are unique to their families um, that their friends may not also experience. Um, we do parent groups, um, same, to have a space for those parents. And we, we love our parents and have a lot of fun and great conversations with them. Um, 
We have our own arts programming now that we do in Cape Coral and Fort Myers. So photography, yoga, music, dance, art, I said that, whatever it might be, <laughs> we're doing it. And it's, it's, it's been awesome because I think, again, that continuum of care, like Dave said, to meet the needs of families through life um, and to give our kids opportunities. So some of our kids are tremendous artists. We would have never known that if we didn't have a venue or a vehicle for them to explore that. Um, so it's it's been awesome. It has been really great to see these programs just take off, honestly. And in the few months that we've had them running, they've really grown quite a bit. Well, we'll have a list of all of them on our website and we'll link to your website. But we are unfortunately out of time. I want to thank my guests. Um, Anjali Vandry is co-founder and vice president of Family Initiative. Anjali, thank you so much. Thank you. And David Brown is Family Initiative's co-founder and president. David, thanks to you as well. Appreciate you, Mike. You can find information about their bi-monthly free autism screenings and the various programs they offer and how to get involved on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear all of our episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.